The podcast you're about to listen to may contain random lines from musical theater, terrible attempts at regional accents, and a sincere discussion about mental health. You have been warned. Are you ready to start singing with your feet? Formidable! Allez, c'est parti! Juste dans la joie Une joie profonde Nos cœurs, elle inonde Cette joie, elle vient du ciel Non, nous ne sommes pas fous Welcome to Sing With Your Feet My name is Lily Fields And I'm going to be your fairy godmother For the next half hour or so We've been talking about something Rather dry and boring for the last few weeks That is, we've been talking about virtue Listen I know, I know that it's boring. I know that it puts you to sleep. Be that as it may, I cannot do anything about this conviction, yes, this moral imperative that is pushing me to talk about something that I have no business talking about. Why have I no business talking about it? For one, I'm not an expert, not in philosophy, not in theology, not in psychology, which I posited are the three origins of the 101 virtues I submitted to you for your perusal. So that's number one. But for number two, I am not terribly virtuous. Last week, I told you, I make the right choices, that is, I am intentionally virtuous, about 30% of the time. This is, naturally, an unscientific figure, but it feels about right. The rest of the time, I'm either unintentionally stumbling my way into the right thing, or unintentionally doing the wrong thing, or I am quite intentionally making decisions that will make my life more complicated. More complicated morally, relationally, intellectually, or spiritually. This intentionally making the wrong decisions, that is something I like to call being unspiritual. The word comes, yes, from a Bible verse that says, I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. I just love it that Paul in Romans seems to be looking down a telescope through the centuries and seems to know that although I really want to be working on a chapter in a novel that I'm writing right now, what I'm really doing is lollygagging along the TikTok algorithm watching videos about unclogging drains. I hate this, but I do it anyway. That was what we talked about last week. It was a whole episode, and I could probably make an entire series about the things that I want to be doing and the things that I end up doing instead. Do you do this too? Do you end up looking back on your day and wondering how in the world you ended up so far off track from where you wanted to be? Well, in episode 47 of the podcast called Dress for the Life You Want, I brought up a concept called the recursive shapes. Also known as fractals, it's a geometric shape that, when it's divided into parts, each part is a smaller smaller version of the whole. It's an image for which the same structure is evident at any level of resolution. Fractals and recursive shapes are found everywhere in nature, and they're also found in our lives. The way we spend an hour is how we spend our day. And how we spend our day is how we spend our week. How we spend our week is how we spend our month. Our months become years, years become decades, and decades become a lifetime. All in the image of the way we spent a single hour. 
sure, we might have moments of great efficiency. We might have creative flow and days of intense self-discipline, but these are mostly the exceptions to the rule. If we, let me rephrase that, if I fritter away an hour on TikTok watching drain unclogging videos and musical theater who sang it best videos, what hope is there for me in having a memorable day or a memorable week? If this cuts a little close to home for you, keep in mind, there is no judgment coming from me. I'm over here admitting that I struggle to make the most of my free time. There are ways that I have figured out how to buckle down, even a little tiny bit. And one of those is the ideal life exercise. Every single day, asking myself four questions about my progress towards my ideal life. It's a habit, which incidentally, building healthy habits is one way to get out of the fractal of time wasting and life frittering. The ideal life exercise at least puts me face to face with the questions about what isn't working and it allows me to introspect about how my own choices could be sabotaging my happiness. The point of this is that we can start changing the fractal of our lives. We can start by getting serious about virtue. I'm not saying we need to become virtuous because that just sounds too hoity-toity to be real. But if we really want to get off the treadmill of, an, of unsatisfying days and wasted time, the pursuit of virtue is where it's at. Yes, it's hard to make the right decisions. No, it's not always fun. Yes, we sometimes fail, but every failure is an opportunity to know ourselves and our temptations and our weaknesses better. There is literally no downside to pursuing virtue. I grew up in a charming lakeside town in northeastern Ohio outside of Cleveland. Although I had a secret hope that one day I would be some kind of Broadway superstar, and I objectively had some raw talent, what I lacked was the determination and the perseverance to ever turn that secret hope into a reality. This talent, let's be clear, it is not one that I ever deserved or ever had to work much for. It's one of those golden coins that was distributed to me to invest throughout my life. Something else that was distributed to me for seemingly no good reason, and that seemed useless to a young girl growing up on the shores of Lake Erie, is that I spoke French well. It was some kind of mystery. And I can't be exactly sure why, but I have been an overthinker and a creative type since my earliest memory. I like to think. I like ideas. It's one of those silver threads of joy that has been a theme throughout my entire life. I have distinct memories of wonderful conversations throughout my school years, and when my mother asked me what I did that day, I would say, I philosophized. I was someone incredibly annoying who had thoughts about everything. Ideas about how to make things better, self-righteous, often ignorant ideas, which were probably dangerous and embarrassing, but to me, they seemed shiny and new and worth defending. When it came to move on from high school, I very much didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Sure, I harbored that secret dream, but I was mortified of criticism and I didn't have a thick enough skin, not to mention that I don't have a competitive bone in my body. So I gave up my dream of performing. The French thing though, that could get me somewhere, at least halfway around the world, right? So when the opportunity to study in France for a year after high school presented itself, I jumped on it. It was at a bus stop in Montpellier, France, that I met a young man, not just any young man, a young man who was studying philosophy. Specifically, he was writing his dissertation on logic. Yeah, I met my match. 
As you can imagine, we spent the better part of a year staying up, talking all night, reinventing the world, philosophizing, if you will. We played Mastermind, which is one of those logic and deduction games. We played that for days on end. And I invented theories on everything. By everything, I mean everything. We ended up getting married a couple of years later, and now he is stuck with me and my endless theorizing. So that is how I met their father, and I'm really glad I did. The idea to study virtue in depth is one that crept into my mind around 2004. I had been married for about five years. At the time, I was teaching Sunday school to kids, and the curriculum that we were working from was one that took one biblical virtue per month that could be illustrated by Bible stories and expounded on it each Sunday for that month. I loved this method because it really gave kids and parents practical things to talk about at home. I didn't have my own children at the time, but the thought that what we were doing in Sunday school could be applicable to parent and sibling relationships and friendships and teamwork and perseverance, it, it seemed really exciting to me. Practical and applicable. I love ideas that are practical and applicable. This truly inspiring and exciting time coincided with our decision to move back to France in 2007. This really cool curriculum highlighted 24 virtues. What was intriguing about these 24 virtues was that some of them overlapped with the quote-unquote notion, the notions, which is a French educational term for the themes that my husband would have to cover in his philosophy classes that he would be teaching. Things like truth, courage, justice, wisdom, and faith. What if? What if? What if teaching virtue wasn't just applicable to kids in Sunday school, but was also something that the French education system deemed important? You may or may not know this, but the French education system famously wants to keep anything religious-y out of its classrooms. So this seemed like a hiccup, some kind of overlooked flaw in the system. So my husband and I sat down with these notions, the notions that he would be covering, and we cross-referenced them with the 24 virtues from our Sunday school lessons. As we did so, we found that there were more virtues that we wanted to add. This was, for the philosopher Prince and Princess, something rather fun to think about, to theorize about, and to dream about. But that was about as far as it got, until we started wanting to have babies of our own. Neither of us felt very confident in our ability to be a parent. I almost said be a good parent, but the truth is I wasn't sure I would even know how to love a child of my own. The closest to children I had ever been was when I was teaching Sunday school. So I dragged out our list of virtues, and with it was our cross-referenced list. And then I got to wondering if maybe I could figure out how to transmit this list of virtues to my children. If I could do that, then maybe I would be at least an adequate parent. I mean, that list of virtues was how I would want my child to end up. Every last one of those virtues. So that meant that I would have to figure out how to display those virtues, how to embody them so that I could be an example for my children. The list kept getting longer and longer. I started defining the virtues. I started to find that there was one of the virtues that seemed to be central to all the others, namely the virtue of wisdom. And I was seeing connections between them. I was seeing how, for example, two virtues that I deemed 
crucial to a happy life, like humor and seriousness, they seemed to be polar opposites, yet I still considered them to be important and valid. Or the virtue of responsibility, it seemed to have applications in every single area of our lives. I also began to see that virtue without wisdom could be dangerous, and that virtue to the excess can be foolishness. I saw that some virtues were directed inwards towards the self, and others were useful in dealing with others. Some were more directed toward information or to things, and some overlapped all these three areas. Many times over the last few years, I have started, stopped, stumbled, fallen, gotten back up, and obsessed over the study of virtue. And here's what I've discovered. The ancient philosophers had something to say about virtue, and while not all of it seems applicable to us in the kind of world we live in today, they were onto something. The Bible exhorts us towards virtue, all kinds of virtue, enlightened by wisdom, and equally warns us about vice and the pitfalls of making unwise choices. As much as these two things are true, it is very, very difficult to talk about virtue without sounding preachy and judging, or as if we're prescribing a lifestyle that we ourselves are unable to adhere to, aka hypocrisy. The religious people who soapboxed about values were some of the most offensive hypocrites. And yet, I could not let this go. So here's the conclusion I've come to, and it is the only credential that I bring to this discussion. I am a philosopher not because I have studied philosophy. I am a philosopher because I love wisdom. That's right. Philio. That is the verb to love in Greek. And Sophia. That is the word for wisdom. A person who loves wisdom is a philosopher. Here on this podcast, I am going to expose to you some of my applied philosophy on practical virtue. In other terms, I have a theory about that. By now, you have read or listened to my list of 101 virtues. I am not going to define them for you until we need to, which we might eventually need to do because there are some subtle distinctions between some ideas. Most of them are fairly self-explanatory words that exist in our collective conscience, even if we've never really thought about them before. Again, I'm gonna try to keep this light, and I'm gonna try not to put you to sleep immediately, but I want to expose some of the different facets that I've been theorizing about when it comes to virtue. One of them, as I mentioned earlier, is called orientation. What is orientation? That is the question, is this virtue turned towards me, towards other people, or is it towards things or ideas? For example, the virtue of stewardship is going to be more oriented towards things, whereas the virtue of authority is going to be more oriented towards people. Courtesy, which I like to define as a series of small sacrifices to make someone's life better, is oriented towards other people, too. Wonder is a virtue that can be oriented both towards people and towards things. Learning is a virtue that is oriented towards ideas, therefore a thing. Another facet of virtue is intentionality. Is it active, passive, impulsive? Does this virtue require us to make a decision? For example, the virtue of learning means that we choose to apply ourselves to the acquiring of new information or skills. This makes learning an active virtue. On the other hand, the virtue of knowledge pulls from the vast experience I have of life. There's no decision to acquire this information. It's simply the result of a lifetime of learning, 
with a little L. I would argue that bravery and courage are two distinct virtues. I argue that courage is an active state of intention, and it's also a mental state, although it is not always accompanied by action. I would also argue that bravery is kind of impulsive. It's animated by the fight-or-flight response. Bravery is courage in action. But bravery can exist without courage, and without wisdom for that matter. There's another facet of virtue that I like to call the flip side. Honestly, I don't know that anyone could take issue with the virtues on our list as being ideals. I mean, unless someone could convincingly argue to me that honesty as a virtue is more trouble than it's worth, or that bravery as a virtue is actually a bad thing. And I do not shy away from making game show ding-ding-ding sounds when I score a point on this kind of debate, so just be forewarned. That said, the first rule of virtue is don't talk about virtue. Wait, no, that's not right. No, the first rule of virtue is that wisdom must accompany all virtue. Without wisdom, at its best, it's just a virtuous notion. It's an empty sail. At its worst, it can be a dangerous weapon. Virtue without wisdom is what I like to call the flip side. For example, patriotism is a virtue which signals a love of one country's or a cultural identity. However, the flip side might be chauvinism, which says my identity is better than everyone else's identity. Or fanaticism, we must destroy or reform those who are not of our identity. Does that make sense? We remove wisdom from patriotism and you end up with chauvinism or fanaticism. Ooh, I could keep describing things like that all day, but I won't. I'm just going to tell you about one more facet of virtue. It's the heartbeat. Now, is that a strange word to use for a facet of virtue? Maybe, but I like to imagine that each virtue is like a living thing and it exists in certain parts of our life. That heartbeat maybe exists in our thoughts or our actions and can eventually, when it's become strong enough and regular enough, become an attitude of the heart. Most virtues have a primary place where they exist. For example, the virtue of curiosity exists first in our thoughts. The virtue of courtesy exists first in our actions. Endurance happens through action. Lucidity happens in our thoughts. Each of these, if we practice them for long enough and regularly enough, can become attitudes. An attitude of curiosity brings about lifelong learning. An attitude of courtesy puts other people first in small, meaningful ways. An attitude of endurance means we don't give up in the hard times. An attitude of lucidity allows us to neither over nor underestimate what we bring to the table in any given situation. The heartbeat of a virtue is, it's, it's like the place where we can find that virtue in our own lives so that we can work on it. Learning to actively live in that heartbeat means that we can de develop new attitudes. This is one of the goals of learning about virtue. One place to look for the heartbeat of a virtue is in our ideal life themes, but I'm pretty sure you already thought of that. And the fable now you see everything that I just shared with you it's me that made it all up so if you don't like it or if you disagree with it then I would love to hear about it. I know that I am but a humble fairy godmother and I have no pretension to be a professional thinker. There are probably holes in my logic. 
I know that a professional philosopher, one of those French thinkers who likes to sit around wearing all black, taking long drags on cigarettes and publishing intensely researched papers that might be interesting to like two other people, they would probably laugh me out of town. Likewise, I'm afraid to let my churchy friends in on my elaborate theories on virtue because I'm afraid that they'll chase me out of the church with a pitchfork. That said, I have been thinking about this for a really, really long time, even if it might only be interesting to like two other people. Why would they laugh me out of town or chase me out of the church with a pitchfork? Well, because I am mixing up the sacred and the profane. I'm taking ideas from both spheres, mixing in a few humanist ideas and calling them a unified theory of applied philosophy on practical virtue. To the philosophers who laugh at me, I can only say, sorry, I don't smoke, and I like to wear color too much to join you at your patio table. To the churchy folks, I would say this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. I believe that there is sacred to be found in the profane. The use of the word whatever in that sentence I just read means literally that. Whatever is blah, 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 blah. So yes, I can experience the presence of God while felting wool or watching the stars. I can, and I have. There is also profane in what has become sacred. There are ways in which the sacred has been twisted and turned into a soapbox and made into battering rams to demonize people groups or those people whose opinions we do not share. There are swaths of people who have decided it was expeditious to mix up their political opinions and their churchy ideas in order to get what they want, to violent effect. So I figure that if I'm, theoretically at least, irritating people on both sides of the spectrum, that I'm pretty much exactly where I want to be. Keep in mind, my research into the previously existing methods of defining or studying virtue has turned up very little in terms of practicality. But as far as I can tell, no one from the sacred, nor from the profane, has undertaken to define and articulate in a systematic way the concept of virtue. It seems that no one on either side has either wanted to or dared take a stance. But me? I'm perfectly foolish, and I'm willing to stand with one hand on Aristotle and the other hand on King Solomon. For Aristotle, the pursuit of virtue is the path to happiness. And for Solomon, the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. I don't argue with Aristotle. I just listen. I don't argue with King Solomon. I just trust that as wisdom went, he had a goodly amount of it. So here's where things are going to start getting fun. You know how when I introduced the topic of virtue, I said that I thought it could be studied the way color is studied, using established ways of looking at color to help us articulate the relationships between different virtues and how they exist in our lives. Well, now it's time for me to put up or shut up. First things first, I'm certain that you are familiar with a color wheel. We have a color wheel. It's a circle divided in thirds. They're the primary colors, red, blue, yellow. On the outside of our virtual wheel, on the blue part, it's written the orientation that we will call self. On the yellow part, it's written others. And on the last part, it's written things. These are the three major orientations of our 101 virtues, with a few overlaps here and there. Dividing those thirds in two are the secondary colors, which are made by mixing the primary colors. So here we're talking about orange, green, and purple. These remain within the confines of the virtue orientation. Lastly, we have the delightful nuances that graduate 
from between these sixths, which are the, called the tertiary colors, made by mixing the secondary with a primary, red-violet or violet-red, depending on if there's more red or more violet, blue-green or green-blue, and so on and so on. We'll talk about this in a second. But next, let's talk about color harmony. Harmony is not something measurable when it comes to color, and virtue is the same way. But there are clusters of colors that work well together, either because they are similar or because they complement each other well. It makes sense. It provides a sense of balance. And this balance is something intuitive or idiosyncratic. Too little variation, and the cluster is boring or bland. Too much contrast, and it feels chaotic or overdone. Harmony is a dynamic equilibrium. Let me explain what I mean. Colors that are next to one another on the color wheel are called analogous colors. This might be a passage from lime green to a saturated green to a turquoise, for example, on a simple color wheel. On our virtue wheel, tenacity, perseverance, endurance are on the orange-red to red-orange to red spectrum. And they are analogous virtues, fairness, impartiality, and tolerance. Analogous virtues on the lime green to saturated green spectrum. They're similar with little nuances. Next, of course, there are the complementary colors. Two colors directly opposite one another on our color wheel, they create a maximum contrast, and they're called complementary colors, obviously. On our virtue wheel, we have, for example, commitment and courage as complementary values. They're across from each other. Gratitude and lightheartedness are complementary virtues. When it comes to our virtue wheel, it differs from the color wheel in a few important ways. For one thing, it's made up of four concentric circles, one in the middle and then three wheels. That center round in the middle is white. Then there's that first wheel around it, a second, and then a third at the outside. Where the primary fully saturated colors are located, so it's about the 60 degree mark on each of the outer circles, there is the same virtue. It's the virtue of responsibility. At the overlap of the self and the other's orientation, we have the virtues of candor, authenticity, and of honesty. They are all very similar on the surface. Candor is speaking our mind in a free and honest way. Authenticity is an effort to present oneself in an honest way. And honesty is an attitude of valuing the truth. The largest wheel, the one at the outside of the circle, it represents the visible outward expression of a virtue. It's the virtue in action. Let's say, for argument's sake, that this is the virtue of candor. It's a visible thing. The middle ring is the mindset that the virtue produces. For argument's sake, this is going to be the mindset of authenticity. And the inner ring is the state of the heart, the attitude, or if you believe in it, the state of the soul that is a result of the virtue. The state of the heart in our example is honesty. I promise I'm going to get you a visual of this soon, but trust me, it's definitely worth looking at. Lest we forget, the center part of our wheel, which is white, is the virtue of wisdom. I have so much more to say about this, but I think I might have worn out my welcome with you on the subject for the day. I will put a link in the show notes to a rough draft of my visual that I've been slaving over of this color wheel in case you want to see it. It's a work in progress, but if it helps you see what we're trying to do here, then I'm willing to pull back the curtain a little bit for you. So now we are at the part of the podcast in which I update you on my efforts to live out the golden rule in 2023. And I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't done much of anything for anyone lately that I would want done for me. 
It's been vacation, and I haven't done a very good job of keeping my golden rule thinking cap on during vacation. It feels like it's just barely enough to have meals on the table and to make sure everybody has clean laundry. Maybe that is enough, actually. I have, on the other hand, had a few recurring nagging thoughts about one specific issue that I'm that I'm too embarrassed to talk about here. It's an area of my life that's always been a little bit of a struggle, and I guess I'm starting to feel a little bit selfish about someone else's generosity, but I genuinely don't know how to reciprocate. So that's what I'm thinking about right now in the hopes that an occasion will present itself soon to do good. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I am really excited that I finally got to share this gigantic theory of virtue with you. I'm not done, but it will get more practical and applicable as we progress. I want to give a great big thank you to Seven Productions here in Mulhouse, France for the use of the song La Joie as the intro and outro to the show, to Matt Kugler who sang it, and to Claude Egwe who wrote it. This is your fairy godmother signing off. Just remember, it is never too late to start singing with your feet.